Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the eighth episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I am joined today by Sasha Suvorov, who is an assistant professor in the environmental health sciences at UMass. He was born in the USSR and later moved to the People's Republic of Yemen, where he spent hours snorkeling around coral reefs and collecting seashells. Uh, this hobby grew into his research, and he obtained degrees from the A. Severtsov Institute of Ecology and Evolution and the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow. Um, his current research focuses on long-lasting tissue reprogramming by environmental chemicals. Also joining us today as a guest is Matt Moore, who just joined the UMass faculty this spring as an assistant professor in the Department of Food Science. He's originally from a suburb of Philadelphia. He got his PhD in food science at North Carolina State University. Before coming to UMass, he worked as a postdoc for the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring System at the Center for Disease Control, studying antimicrobial resistance trends. Um, he is an active member of the International Association for Food Protection, the American Society for Microbiology, and the Institute of Food Technologies. That's and right. um, he is also the founding treasurer and co-director of the World Society for Virology. Um, thanks for joining us, Matt. And uh, also joining as my co-host today is comedian Monk Kelly. Thanks for joining us, Monk. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> um, so I think we'll start with Sasha. Um, do you want to just tell us about your research? Yeah, I will be happy to. So uh, my current research is in the area of environmental to toxicology. Uh, specifically, I'm interested in the mechanisms and consequences of long-lasting tissue reprogramming. Uh, that is still very poorly understood mechanism of toxicity. I mean when you are exposed, for example, in utero or during very early life, and then when outcomes like health uh, changes, health conditions uh, develop much, much later in life. Mm. Just to give an example, for example, if uh, somebody develops uh, diabetes or Alzheimer at the age of, let's say, 60, can it be that this condition was pre-programmed when this person was yet a fetus. It, actually, it can, uh, but we still have very poor uh, understanding of all those mechanisms. So specifically, I am focusing for a while on a chemical which is called polybrominated diphenyl ether. It's a group of chemicals. They are uh, brominated flame retardants, which were added to all sorts of polymers, like including uh, plastics, uh, baby pajamas, uh, all uh, electronic equipment and et cetera, et cetera. So those chemicals were used for around 50 years in North America. And uh, then there was a process, like a long process of banning of those chemicals. So by 2013, uh, industry have withdrawn those chemicals from the market, but uh, concentrations of those chemicals in the environment were uh, staying and st are still uh, very high. And if we will take blood samples from all of people sitting in the studio, we will find PBDs at high concentrations there because 
those chemicals are very stable, uh, persistent, they are lipophilic, meaning that they accumulate in the adipose tissue of humans and they stay there for many, many years. Mm. Can so I just introduce that? Lipid, yeah, absolutely. Lipid, lipidophilic, you said? Lipophilic, So that yes. means it stays in like your fat cells? Yes, oh, okay. meaning that they prefer to be dissolved in lipids rather than in water-type solvents. Okay. And uh, usually when chemical is lipophilic, it means that uh, every, every, every cell of a, any living creature is uh, surrounded by a lipid membrane. Okay. It means that if a uh, chemical is lipophilic, it will easily penetrate into any cell and will stay there. Mm. So um, because of that, those chemicals are persistent. They stay in the environment and in our bodies for a really very long periods. And um, their concentrations in the environment increased for the period of around 30 years. And they stay, uh, still stay very high. Uh, in fact, uh, the most recent studies show that concentrations are still increasing a little bit in human tissues mm. uh, due to the fact that our like households are now packed with all those goods which were produced with the use of those chemicals. And um, because of that, uh, we can say that around one-fifth of uh, the North American population uh, was exposed to really high concentrations, which is around 65 million. So those chemicals are now uh, withdrawn by the industry. So mm. industry d is not using it anymore. But the question is, all those 65 millions which were exposed when they were uh, like fetuses or newborns, what will happen with their health uh, later as they will age? And we are speaking about people who today are in the range of ages from zero to, let's say, 15, 20 years old. Okay. So. Um, why I'm that interested in this group of chemicals? Because at a certain point I have found that they are really able to reprogram uh, many uh, health parameters. Mm. So when we expose mice or rats uh, during prenatal period of development or early postnatal period of development, then we can see changes in, for example, metabolism of lipids in those organisms for the rest of their lives. Wow. So we expose for only very short period to very small doses which are relevant for uh, human population, but that that uh, those changes are like permanent. Further, we have found also that uh, the mechanism which is likely involved into reprogramming of tissues is based on uh, the uh, changes in activity of mTOR pathway. I'm sorry for being a little bit nerdy here, so. But <laughs> yeah, I may have I, to stop you and ask you to explain. I know, I know. Yeah. I, I, I'll need to explain a little bit because I believe that that is an exciting pathway. And so, uh, when we speak about pathway, cellular pathway, we okay. think about some cascades of molecular interactions, and usually in those cascades there is some molecule which is a hub, which can collect like uh, input signals from many other uh, signaling mechanisms, and then it regulates something essential underneath. Okay. So mTOR, uh, uh, it's an acronym for mechanistic target of ferropromycin. It is one protein which regulates, uh, as molecular biology joke now, it regulates everything. So this pathway was discovered and characterized pretty recently in the last 10 years. But today we understand that abnormal signaling via mTOR pathway is involved into the pathogenesis of all sorts of cancers. Uh, diabetes, Alzheimer, Parkinson, autism spectrum disorder, um, ADHD, uh, art arthritis, um, male inf female infertility, and etc. So it's really something very, very essential. And we have found that uh, our molecule is changing activity of this mechanism uh, during early life development, 
and that results in long-lasting, like permanent reprogramming of many essential functions. Is this mm -hmm. um, something that's in all of our cells or only certain kinds of cells? So this pathway is, uh, it, it, it works in most of, uh, of tissues. Okay. I, I mean, it's essential for every tissue because it regulates, uh, in general, it regulates the balance between anabolism and catabolism. It regulates what the cell will do. It will disrupt big molecules, biological molecules to produce energy, or it will uh, synthesize new big biological molecules. Okay. So, but... Um, the function of this pathway in different uh, tissues is somewhat different. Okay. And we, it, for me, it was a really great challenge to uh, focus on something because I want now to study everything. Okay. <laughs> but I, I cannot. <laughs> and that's why I have, I cut some branches of my research recently. And now I'm mostly focusing on only two directions. One is reprogramming of metabolism in liver. Uh, why in liver? Because liver is one of the mo most essential metabolically active organs mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and we have found that um, those permanent changes uh, include uh, changes in circulating uh, lipids in blood and if you have too many lipids in circulation that is called uh, hyperlipidemia and that is the major risk factor for heart attack okay which is uh, resulting in around uh, it's the major cause of death in the uh, developed countries mm -hmm. and if you have not a, a lot of uh, lipids in blood that is likely because liver is taking uptaking them too intensively and that may result in uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease which has a prevalence in modern world of around 40 percent so 40 percent of people have it and it is a condition which predispose somebody for uh, diabetes and many other like liver cirrhosis and etc and many other bad uh, conditions so this is so there's kind of like a balance you need to strike yes. with the amount of lipids in your blood and if you have too yes. many you'll have a heart attack and if you have too few you'll have yes. liver disease yes. and diabetes yes. are the kind of extreme consequences yeah, on exactly yes. wow. okay. and and uh, it looks that early life exposure to pbd can uh, shift this balance okay and in fact different doses are shifting in different direction which adds some complication and makes this question even more sophisticated for analysis so also, uh, we are trying with my colleague Richard Pilsner from uh, the same department as me, we mm -hmm. are trying to figure out if the same mechanism is involved into uh, programming of epigenetic signature of spermatozoid, spermatozoids, but I will not speak about that uh, today because it's a collaborative effort. Okay. Um, so uh, why I, I believe that, so I, I am very excited about this line of research today and not be only because we are trying to uh, dissect uh, the principally novel mechanism of toxicity, but also it has like a opposite side of this coin because when you understand how uh, tissues or organs can be programmed, theoretically based on this understanding, you may develop uh, some therapeutic interventions which will program your tissues and organs in the right direction. Okay. So to like show like the bigger picture, our healthcare system today is not as much healthcare, rather it is the disease care system. Mm, yeah. Because we go to medical doctors when we have a problem. But, but it will be much more rational to develop a really a healthcare system which will prevent development of disease. And then imagine that you can give a newborn baby a pill that will forever protect him or her from, let's say, diabetes development like 50 years later in life. Mm. Mm. So that is the philosophy which uh, is uh, only like emerging. I think the only 
a really good example of this use of medication is um, vaccination. Uh, yeah. uh, but rather than that, we mostly don't have other approaches to program health for the for future. And I believe that my research may um, open some new perspectives for absolute for different other diseases which are not caused by like viruses or bacteria or some pathogens. Mm. So. Yeah, that's mostly, in short, uh, what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so you said that these chemicals that you're kind of focusing in on um, are were used in flame retardants. Yes. So there was kind of this notion that people were doing something really good, right, by putting them in everything for a long time. Yeah. So, I'm teaching several classes of toxicology here mm -hmm. on campus, and uh, I st start every class with the following notion. I say that. Uh, we live today in the uh, safest world ever. And from a toxicological point of view, it's, it's also true. Mm. Uh, because there is a lot of concern in, uh, concern about the fact that we are exposed to like a cocktail of hundreds of chemicals with unknown properties. And that's true. Yeah. But from other hand, uh, the effort of uh, toxicologists and community resulted in exclusion from our exposures of the most dangerous compounds to which uh, like our maybe grandmothers and grandfathers were exposed. Mm. And all those chemicals to which we are exposed today, they produce really subtle effects. Those effects which we cannot detect easily or which are really very long delayed. Mm -hmm. So meaning that we are not dying from them. Mm -hmm. But it's still very important to understand uh, what do they do with our biology. Um, it seems like a lot of the things were like put in to try to keep us more safe and then as science progresses like we found out oh no these are bad for us. Are there things that are, we're doing now to make us more safe that we're going to find out in you know, 5, 10, 15 years are actually really bad? Um, yeah, it's a great question and um, uh, it doesn't like, come to my head like, immediately, maybe the good example. Uh, I don't know, for example, uh, fluorinated compounds which are used in Teflon uh, uh -huh. coating of uh, frying pans yeah. or in the, all those uh, raincoats which are impregnated with some materials which make them not uh, penetrable for water. Uh, now knowledge are, is increasing that those chemicals are really also bad for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I always think that there should be some balance because uh, returning back to flame retardants, they saved uh, like millions of lives. Mm -hmm. But uh, today the smoking, uh, which was the major cause of fires in mm -hmm. houses, is going down, like much smaller population is smoking, continue to smoke now, meaning that the risk of fires decreased significantly. Mm -hmm. And if this risk is decreasing, we need to estimate uh, what will be the like, benefits and uh, uh, of still using the same huge amount of chemicals in all our goods. And likely the benefit is not as much as, as strong now, so we need to decrease the use of those chemicals. Mm. And like, I have a question. In general, are chemicals that are more uh, lipo, what is lipo lipophilic. lipophilic, are they more harmful to the ones that dissolve in water? Um, so lipophilicity itself is not, does not mean that the chemical uh, will produce toxic effect. Okay. It will just mean that it will go to the body of uh, organism yeah. easily and stay there. So, so for some other chemicals which are water-soluble, they may be much more toxic but then they will not that easily go into the body because we, we need mm -hmm. to also to take into consideration not only our body, but also uh, the, the, all those different uh, 
pathway through which chemicals can penetrate into us. For example, if the chemical was dampened by like some wastewater treatment plant into uh, ocean, what will happen with it there? If the chemical is lipophilic, it will likely accumulate in plankton. This plankton will be eaten by small fish, mm -hmm. then it will uh, even accumulate it even higher concentration in this fish, and usually the magnification factor is around 10, meaning that if concentration in plankton, I don't know, is 10 uh, micromolar, then in fish it will be 100 micromolar, then oh. in the next uh, trophic level it will be 1,000, and etc. And then uh, finally, when we eat, let's say, tuna, which mm -hmm. is a big carnivorous fish, which is eating smaller fish, which in its turn add like even smaller fish, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's when we can be exposed to this chemical. So it is returning back to us through a really very long chain of transformations. Mm -hmm. uh, not even transformations, chemical may stay the same, but mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it is going through from one organism to another. And that will not happen if the chemical is uh, hydrophilic, which oh, yeah. if it is water-soluble. It will not accumulate in the body. Mm. Okay. So the higher up the food chain you are, like the more yes. you'll get. And so that's yes. like why, is my, I'm curious. So I know like eating tuna, there's a concern about mercury, right? Mm -hmm. Is mercury, do you know, is that lipophilic? Yes, too? it is. Uh, oh, okay. uh, the fact is that mercury in the water bodies uh, usually exists not uh, only in its inorganic form, but also mm -hmm. in the form of methyl mercury, which means that it is linked with methyl group which makes it metal organic compound and uh, metal organic comp uh, methyl mercury is really highly lipophilic so uh -huh. it easily accumulates in the uh, in the adipose tissue of so living lead creatures too. Mm -hmm. then lead also um, not too much no lead accumulates mostly in bones uh -huh. yeah in the, in the form of inorganic uh, compound so somebody who's vegan would be maybe less susceptible to lipophilic would they have like lower concentrations or is that maybe not important? Yeah, no, th th that's absolutely true. That's okay. absolutely true. I just bring it up because I'm yes. vegan. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you wanted that I'm to come up. I'm feeling very good about my food choices right <laughs> now, thank you. But I'm not vegan, that's why I never thought about it <laughs> a lot, but uh, I think that uh, having only vegetable diet may uh, be linked with some other uh, potential risks. Ah, right. You're, because you're some plants them. have uh, some chemicals which they evolution develop to protect them th from grazing mm. uh, themselves. Yeah. And uh, so I, I mean that if you uh, eat a lot of uh, food of uh, one type, mm. you may be exposed to too high concentration of a chemical which is not harmful at small dose, but at high dose it can become harmful so, so spread out what you eat <laughs> across yeah, as many exactly. things exactly that's, that, that's my that's actually one of the uh, basic principles of healthy eating mm -hmm. so just diversify your food yeah and then all those bad chemicals which are present there will never reach uh, uh, those toxic uh, uh, toxic doses <laughs> easier said than done yeah. though because <laughs> a can of tuna is really easy <laughs> for <Yeah>. me at least <laughs> um yeah, so it seems like one of the things that's really challenging about your work, and I guess, you know, you, is that you talked about this, that there's this really long uh, time lag between the exposure and then the, and the, the impact. Yeah, yes. um, yeah that, that's absolutely true. Uh, in fact, I, I don't like to complain, <laughs> complain, but there are many challenges. And, uh, for example, uh, 
let's speak about this mTOR pathway. So it's really an exciting uh, molecular mechanism, which was, uh, which, which is very popular now, but it was not popular, not even known a few years ago. Wow. And the scientific community uh, is traditionally organized into groups. And uh, people in those groups, they share knowledge, they support each other, they have their own conferences, they have their own journals, and etc. So me studying uh, from toxicological perspective, this pathway makes a, a challenge of joining in any of existing groups because nobody, th this group doesn't exist. So uh, what type of conference should I go to present my results? What type of journal should I publish in to present my results? There are no specialized journals or conferences uh, that uh, really fit very well. Okay. So meaning that uh, uh, opening something new in science, even if it is really small, I don't pretend that I'm like making a revolution, no, not at all, but uh, even if this area is small, it is still uh, challenging to uh, find a matching uh, group of people. Mm. And if you don't have this matching group of people, uh, it makes everything difficult because when you submit a paper into the journal, uh, your reviewers do not recognize it as something that they understand well, mm. which is native to them, yeah. <laughs> etc. Yeah. And uh, as you say exactly, the, another challenge is that you need to run experiments for a long time in order to detect these long-lasting effects. Mm -hmm. And uh, given that I work mostly with mice and rats, because those are the, like, the most common models for mammalian organism, uh, it is expensive. Mm -hmm. Because you need to keep those mice for years and uh, pay for every day of keeping them in cages, yeah. etc. <laughs> yeah, and somebody to take care of them. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you said the discovery of this very important pathway, that it's mTOR, right? M-T-O-R. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, was recent. So was can you talk about how it was discovered? Or yes, I will be happy because it's uh, an exciting story, really. Yeah. So not all uh, molecular biology discoveries are that as exciting. <laughs> okay. Uh, so uh, you guys know Easter Island? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is famous for all those stone <clears throat> heads. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, like, if it, you know about that, but this uh, Easter Island is one of the uh, iconic examples of how uh, human activity can impact uh, environment in a very bad way, because in, I believe in 17th century, I may mistake in time, so sorry for that, uh, there was an ecological like, catastrophe uh, happened that happened on this island when due to deforestation, like human-derived deforestation of the island, it lost... Uh, the whole ecosystem living there, like all plants and animals and uh, uh, soil layer, and its population shrunk from around, I believe, 17,000 to uh, 1,700. Wow. Uh, so why I'm, I'm speaking about this island? The, uh, the native name for this island is Rapa Nui. Uh, so much later, a group of scientists were, uh, have found a bacteria, soil bacteria on this uh, island uh, and they extracted from this bacteria some chemical which they tried to um, uh, test as a potential fungicide mm. uh, to fight uh, fungal infections because okay. bacteria living in soil they experience attacks from uh, fungi that live around them and they need to develop some chemical protection so that's why uh, bacteria are good candidates to look for chemicals which can fight fungal infections. Mm. 
So they uh, extracted it from bacteria from this island. That's why they called it rapamycin. So the c- name of the island is Rapanui, and mm. they gave this chemical name of r- rapamycin. In the course, course of testing, they have realized that it doesn't have really strong uh, antifungal properties, but they have realized that this chemical is significantly suppressing immune response in mice. So all this uh, inflammatory reaction, which is uh, usually induced by foreign agents, was significantly suppressed. And uh, then they are like kind of repurposed this molecule, and after additional testing, uh, it was uh, approved by Food and Drug Administration as a drug uh, uh, to suppress the immune system after organ transplantation therapies. Okay. So today, rapamycin saved like, thousands of lives. Specifically, it is used in uh, renal transplantation to suppress this uh, immune response so, and uh, let people to live with a, a kidney from coming from somebody else. Okay. So uh, as soon as this drug uh, get this uh, active use, uh, the question uh, like arised, wha- what does it do actually at the molecular level? And um, uh, after additional research, it was shown that this molecule is suppressing specific protein, which was known before, but nobody really knew anything about this protein. Nobody knew about its functions and uh, its importance. And this protein uh, received a name, uh, mechanistic target of rapamycin, because it was suppressed by rapamycin. Okay. And mechanistic target of rapamycin is mTOR. Okay. So that's how mTOR was discovered. So, but later uh, research on mTOR have showed that mTOR is actually a molecular hub, which is uh, collecting information of uh, about different nutrients available in the organism, like sugars, amino acids, lipids, energy in the form of ATP molecules, uh, oxygen, etc. And when it uh, gets all the signals which inform it that the cell is starving, it is suppressing all the bio- biogenesis processes, like synthesis of lipids, proteins, new ribosomes, mitochondria, and etc. But it activates autophagy, which is the process which can like, reutilize uh, all those uh, organelles and macromolecules which are not in need anymore, which are like excessive. Uh, and that is to supply cell with nutrients from internal resources. And opposite, when uh, mTOR is feeling that there is, like, is collecting information uh, that there is enough of uh, nutrients, then it stimulates all biogenesis processes. So meaning that it is major this master switch which regulates cellular metabolism. Mm. So. Wow, cool. I mm. feel like maybe I want to go back um, and just clarify for people who maybe I don't know if uh, everybody knows um, about so you said that they originally used this bacteria to suppress uh, immune response for organ transplant so I, maybe this is common knowledge or maybe not but that you know when you get an organ transplant your body rejects it right I don't know yes. if this maybe can you jump in monk is that is that something that you feel like is common knowledge or I've heard of it before. I don't know yeah. why the body would reject it. Well, because it's not part of your bi- like body, right? I don't know. Yes. Do you, or do you want to maybe maybe you could tell us more about that? Yeah, I don't think that I can give like any additional details. Yeah. It's just the idea that uh, our immune system is always monitoring if there are any invaders in our body, mm. okay. and as soon as there are, they try to reject them, so to kill them, to eliminate them. Uh, that keeps our organism healthy. 
And when we, in organ transplantation, we put into the body organ coming from another uh, person, uh, our immune system recognizes it as something foreign mm. and tries to reject it. So that's why we need to suppress this immune response for this organ to stay and uh, uh, to function normally. Right, so even though you want that transplant, your body doesn't know that and mm -hmm. it thinks it's an invader. It's for some reason, I don't know why a kidney would randomly invade anyone's body, but <laughs> that's not. Attack of the kidneys. <laughs> um, but so yeah, that's, that's a challenge though for anyone getting an organ transplant because then your immune system is suppressed in all ways, right? You can't really, I don't know, you can't target just like, just let this kidney in, but don't let anything else bad in. So you're kind of vulnerable at that point. Yeah, sure. Is that, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I have one more question. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, you were talking about your research is like to decrease the toxicology. Like, what can we do to decrease toxicology in our fatty tissues? Uh, so, um, no, I'm mostly focusing on effects. So oh, I'm, you're I'm, I'm effects. Yeah, okay. on, on mechanisms and effects. I want to understand uh, how does it happen. Uh, that uh, some chemical, uh, when it is getting to our organism, is producing health effects. Okay. What is the link between this chemical and health effect? And uh, why it is really important, because usually uh, molecular mechanisms are not unique. Uh, I mean that usually there are big classes of chemicals which all affect the same mechanism. Mm -hmm. If you understand this mechanism, you can understand, like, overall toxicology of a, of a big class of chemicals mm. and based on this understanding you may develop preventive or protective interventions uh, to reduce health effects induced by those chemicals. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. Our guests today are Dr. Sasha Suvorov from the Environmental Health Sciences Department here at UMass and Dr. Matt Moore from the Food Science Department. My co-host is comedian Monk Kelly. Jumping right back into it. Um, so we're going to move on and talk to Matt Moore. Um, do you want to just go ahead and tell us about your research? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm in uh, the Department of Food Science, and so I'm uh, mostly concerned with foodborne pathogens, so like food microbiology, um, and uh, specifically viruses. Uh, it's also like a relatively new in like the scope of microbiology. Uh, foodborne viruses is, is kind of new since like the last 20 years. Because um, uh, previous to that, it was mostly bacteria, like foodborne bacteria was mm. sort of the focus in the 90s. Uh, and then a paper came out in 1999, and it said, oh, wait, there's these foodborne viruses that are the uh, leading cause of all uh, foodborne illness. Um, and so that's sort of uh, what my Ph.D. work was on and uh, what my lab will be doing. I just got here in January. So, right, yeah. Um, oh, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and these viruses uh, are, are still the leading cause of uh, foodborne illness globally. Um, they're very, very difficult to control. They're, they're very easily transmitted. They have like a lot of different properties um, that make them very difficult uh, to sort of deal with. Uh, and I have a couple of different branches related to these viruses. Um, one of them is sort of being able to detect these viruses in environmental and food samples. Um, because unlike bacteria, uh, with bacteria you can sort of just take like a sample and throw it in an incubator and they'll grow and divide because they're living things. Whereas uh, with viruses, um, they're usually just at very low concentrations in food samples and on surfaces and stuff like that. And you can't really like just take it and throw it into an incubator and get them to uh, 
divide for you. They need a host cell. Do you want to maybe just, for people who maybe don't know what the difference between a bacteria and a virus is, do you want to just explain that kind of fundamental difference? Yeah, so, so bacteria are actually living things like cells that are capable of, you know, taking in food and, and replicating themselves, whereas viruses are basically just, you could just think of them as a, a genome and um, a protein and sometimes a lipid uh, coat, and it, it needs to bind and get inside your host cells so it can replicate because it uses some of the host's machinery to, you know, replicate itself. Um, the viruses that, that uh, I do work on uh, that are foodborne, are mostly, uh, nearly all of them, there's one exception, are uh, what they call non-enveloped. So they don't have, like we were just talking about lipids earlier, uh, these viruses don't have lipids. They're, they're actually just a protein, so they're very stable. So they're a lot harder, uh, like things that have lipids um, te are pre pre a, lot, a little bit easier to you know um, kill because you can usually dissolve the lipid with the lipophilic uh, compounds, whereas uh, these viruses have uh, pretty much a protein coat that is so stable because it's basically designed to, you know, serve as a case for the genome and, and sort of, you know, protect the virus and protect the genome uh, from, uh, you know, any environmental uh, stresses or anything like that. So um, so these, these, these viruses, because they're so stable and they're, they're coated in protein, um, and again, because they're not really living and they're not replicating and they don't need nutrients like bacteria, um, if they get deposited on a surface or somewhere, they'll, they'll stay there for a while. So like these, these uh, noroviruses, which is the one that I mostly study, um, and they're, they're the leading cause of, of foodborne illness, they're, they're capable of just surviving um, on surfaces well over a month. Um, it, it, one of the other challenges is that it doesn't take very much of these viruses or very many of these viruses to, to you know, make you ill. So as little as 18 of these very, very small viruses um, can actually get people sick. And so that's why you have to be able to detect them in like, like a sm very small amount of them, uh, and it's very difficult to do that. So that's, that's what one sort of area um, of my lab will be, you know, trying to develop really easy portable methods that you can take into like a, you know, a food preparation facility or something like that and get results to detect it at a reliable, uh, at, at like a reliable time and level. Um, uh, and one of the other areas, as I mentioned before, these viruses are very stable. So being able to kill them with, with disinfectants is actually a pretty big challenge. So most of the at, at the, at the recommended concentrations for the recommended contact times, most commercial disinfectants don't really work uh, against these viruses, including like those hand sanitizers, like those ethanol uh, hand sanitizers. It doesn't work uh, sort of to the level you want. Um, what what do, what actually kills viruses then? Uh, these the only one that's really been effective is uh, bleach. Uh, like oh 10 yeah, bleach. yeah. <laughs> which so. you don't really want to be mixing with your food, obviously. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or like yeah, like in terms of surfaces and stuff, you know, it can hit uh, certain metals. So a lot of you know a lot of food preparation facilities and all, you can't. It's not necessarily the easiest option um, to try and use bleach. Yeah. Matt, I have a question. So when you speak about all those. Uh, infections induced by foodborne uh, viruses, what type of diagnosis you actually can have? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. You, uh, a lot of it is self-limiting, so if you're healthy, um, you usually survive. Um, where you can start getting into issues is people that are, like we were discussing, immunocompromised people, people whose immune system has sort of been suppressed um, so that they can't really fight the viral infection. Mm -hmm. 
as well. They can have some serious outcomes, including death. Uh, elderly and young children are probably also the sort of populations that can die from it. But mm -hmm. the symptoms are usually just um, like uh, explosive diarrhea and uh, projectile vomiting, uh, which is, I mean, I guess one of the reasons we get into this uh, field is for the poop jokes. So yeah. um, <laughs> can you give us a poop joke? What? Can you give us a poop joke? Um, not right now, off the top of my head right now. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I did like a back of the envelope. Like you'd be surprised. Like so, one in six people gets foodborne illness, and then the majority of these foodborne illnesses are uh, are these you know are these noroviruses. Um, and so I, I did a back of the envelope calculation as of the total volume of diarrhea uh, shed in America oh, no. because of, of norovirus, <laughs> and I think it came out to uh, something like. Uh, is like a little bit over an Olympic-sized swimming pool a month of diarrhea. It's oh, well, that's filled. less than I would have thought, actually. Yeah. <laughs> From well, uh, due to norovirus, though. Yeah, but volumetric, yeah, volume. Uh, that's a lot, to make it a little bit, Yeah, like, to make it a little bit uh, more accessible is, like, if you were to take some of those, um, the, you know, those, like, 32-ounce fountain soda cups? Yeah. Okay. You, you'd probably fill about 100,000 of those a day oh, no. with diarrhea. Just myself? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it. You don't feel like that if you get it. Yeah, it's it's horrible, and you have horrible vomiting too. So they they call it the two bucket disease. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's it's very yeah. It's it, it in especially developing countries though. It's actually a pretty serious thing. It can cause uh, most of the people that die from it are usually children under the age of five. Mm. Um, Is that from dehydration mm -hmm. or? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's mostly like because of you know limited resources in developed countries. It's less of a issue. Um, and then also if there are underlying health conditions, the stress of the dehydration can cause complications. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so they're, they're difficult to kill. They're, it takes very small amount of them. You can get them just like they're fine lasting on a surface for over a month. So, Ooh. you know, like a in month? carpets. And, yeah, oh, over a month, yeah. Wow. Um, we can detect them. And uh, uh, there, was, uh, there was one that I think was pushed in two months. They still found infectious virus uh, with a surrogate virus. Um, so, so yeah, like ethanol hand sanitizers aren't necessarily the greatest. That's why when, um, people say to wash your hands, you should, you know, wash your hands, especially if, uh, especially if you have diarrhea, uh, or better yet, like if you have any kind of diarrheal illness, just lock yourself in your house and, and don't come into contact with anybody. Does That's what I do, but. <laughs> <laughs> Does washing your hands get rid of it better then? It's slightly better, but not, not. Oh necessarily the best. it's especially like under the fingernails and all is people can get into trouble um but but it it, it removes it's slightly better than the ethanol because um, you're just physically removing trying to remove it so yeah. approximately how many species we are speaking about oh that's a, that's a great question that's one of the other many challenges uh, of these noroviruses is um because like they're, they're it's a very fast infection you know it takes like 24 hour incubation period it's in and out it's explosive gets like as yeah. much shedding at high levels and then it's done um, because it's so it's replicating so fast it has a, a sort of a built-in evolutionary uh, mechanism that a lot of the viruses like this uh, have where they have a high error rate when they're trying to replicate um, so that they can basically have very very intense fast evolution to re react to the host immune response um, and so it's sort of like the flu which is another virus that's um, this vi viruses have different genomes, um, and some viruses have RNA genomes. Uh, it can be double-stranded or single-stranded RNA, and some have DNA, including, uh, you know, so th this is 
they're, they're the type of viruses that tend to have single-stranded RNA tend to use a class of proteins to replicate that's very error-prone. And so that's what these neuroviruses are. <clears throat> and what's the advantage of being error-prone? It, it, it's, it's so that uh, because they're shedding at such a high level okay. um, that if you have some, even if they're not capable of replicating, you may have some that end up being more fit in responding to a host's immune system. Oh, so, they're more so like, the yeah. errors kind of, it's like yeah, so they're it's, changing a lot, so then some yeah. they're kind of adapting faster? Yeah, it's it's a sort of a mechanism that can be used where you, you want to sort of basically change, have a lot of rapid change, and even though you have a high higher percentage of particles that aren't capable of infecting somebody, you also increase your chances that you'll have particles that are better at evading the host's immune system that's actively fighting it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of, it's sort of like the flu, which is also an RNA virus, totally different, but, but an RNA virus. And, and as you know, with the flu, you have to get a flu shot every year because it's rapidly sort of changing its, uh, changing, mm -hmm. I guess, its clothing, I guess you would say to your, and you, it's sort of changing what it looks like to the immune system. And, and uh, that's sort of what these viruses do. So every, every, every sort of like two or three years, there's sort of like a, a global just wave of just, there's this one, one strain will just come and just make its rounds just globally. Um, of the flu or the norovirus? Of norovirus, of norovirus. much norovirus. like the flu oh, okay. will escape host herd It'll, immunity. Okay. Um, and sort of make its rounds. Oh, okay. Um, and that kind of happened with the flu this year, right? Was, yeah, that's Is that what, accurate? It was the shot wasn't very effective yeah because they're uh that that's they're, they're sort of like just trying to predict what what it's going to look like um and mm. yeah or what the what this predominant strain is going to be and so it's not very effective so i'm curious are, are we the major host of those viruses or other yeah. like birds or anything else yeah that's that's a good question so like a lot of foodborne illnesses like salmonella and e coli and the bacterial ones are actually found in like chickens and cows and pigs uh human noroviruses are just it's just humans Mm -hmm. um, the ones that infect humans are only really the only reservoir we know about is humans. Oh. Um, so a lot of it, you know, people that don't wash their hands, uh, if somebody vomits near you, like a bunch of these little, like little vomit droplets will still be suspended in the air oh. and you can actually breathe them in and swallow <laughs> oh them. Oh boy. So <laughs> meaning run away from vomiting people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I didn't need to be told that, but it's good to know that that's a good instinct already. <laughs> I mean, I guess unless it's my friend, <laughs> I'll go to help them. Oh, I don't. No, we are not, <laughs> not, right? not speaking of vomiting uh, the result of parties. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd still help a friend who just started vomiting for other reasons. If it was like alcohol poisoning, yeah, for sure. But if it's the flu, I'm like. Yeah. You're just going to ba back away slowly yeah. or fast. Yeah. <laughs> I guess getting back to sort of what my lab does, disinfection, looking for novel disinfectants is sort of uh, one of the other areas that we're exploring, uh, rapid detection. And uh, the third area is sort of a recent development in the field in the fa past few years. Um, there's sort of an emerging uh, area of bacteria-virus interactions. So mm -hmm. we all know about like probiotics and the fact that we have a bunch of you know, bacteria in our gut and that we always have, um, well, a lot of these enteric viruses, it turns out, can be assisted or can utilize these bacteria to uh, infect your cell. So, you know, like generally, you know, like we think that like enteric bacteria are inherently all good, but uh, there might be some that are actually potentially assisting the virus in terms of infecting uh, the, in infecting your intestine. So enemies within. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's still like, with respects to norovirus, not 
very well understood what, okay. what specific bacteria it is, or what the actual molecules that are involved in the interaction are. Um, and so that's one of the other areas that, that I'll be looking into is just trying to f understand what the what the interaction is, if it's equal, because there's some evidence that some bacteria may potentially inhibit viral mm -hmm. infection, whereas some might actually be assisting it. Mm -hmm. um, so there's still a lot of questions in the area that were that you know that need to be investigated. So that's sort of one of the, the other major areas of research that I'll be doing. Kind of like trying to figure out who the mole is. Yeah. <laughs> in that TV show. <laughs> um, do you so when you're studying these viruses, do you get them from poop or where do you get them from? Yeah, that's a gr do great you, like, question. <laughs> how do you how do you obtain this? It's it's actually and if anybody listening there has access to to poop with norovirus in it, um, <laughs> I'm at 250 Chenoweth Laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> You're inviting please, please some, come by with <laughs> some a, unfortunate mail right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's actually one of the challenges. Uh, so normally, when people study viruses, they have like uh, they'll do animal tissue culture. So you'll have like a flask, and you, you, there are certain cell lines that are that are just gonna like you seed it, and it'll just form a layer, and you can actually infect it with the virus. One of the biggest challenges of norovirus since we've known about it was actually being able to get a model where, where we could actually find cells that'll be able to, you know, host the viral replication. Because um, there's a lot of factors that are involved in that that we still don't know about. Um, and very recently we've had two models uh, come out that actually we do get like some modest degree of it, but it's still not going to be at levels you need and it's very, very expensive. Um, so really the way that we get infectious virus is through stool from people who've been infected. So you, so you know, I'm still constantly trying to, you know, I'm reaching out to people in public health laboratories to try and see if they can st save some of the, some of the norovirus positive stool that they get. Um, but yeah, that's it. Like it's a very valuable reagent, actually. Uh, that, that's the main way that you usually get it is like from actual outbreaks. Um, one of the interesting things about norovirus is it is one of the few pathogens that, like foodborne pathogens, that you can still actually do feeding studies with. Um, so you basically take the the virus out of you know somebody's stool and you um, <laughs> basically put it into a food and feed it to volunteers in a hospital. Really? <laughs> Are you serious? Y yeah. Do they know about this? No, that, like, it's that's the thing. It's not a very They're common. They're volunteers. It's like it's not a very big re like resource. It's not a very big. <laughs> There's uh, not a lot of people volunteering <laughs> for this. I I actually tried to. You can make a lot of money on it. Oh, uh, wow. If you're healthy and you're being monitored at a hospital, you have no real like. That's the thing is if if you're uh, like it's not, they're not going to feed it to like you have to be a certain age. You have to wow. have you have to not have any other potential conditions that would cause issues. And there's a whole bunch of other things that you have to go through. And because it's so expensive to do that, like go through all the regulatory stuff and the cost of holding people in a hospital and all of that. Yeah. Uh, you don't really see those studies very often, but um, they have happened and they're still potentially, like you can still potentially do them. You just need a lot of money. Yeah. Wow, so you said you tried to volunteer? I tried to, yeah. They were, they, I think somebody was doing a vaccine study, but the at the time I was in, uh, it was still a PhD student um, but at, at North Carolina State, uh, but the the, pretty much the only lab that I know of that really does the feeding studies is at Emory in Atlanta. Um, so I, I would have had to, you know, try and drive back and forth. Uh -huh, yeah. Okay. And, uh, well, I think it'd be a good idea to rebrand those as weight loss studies. I know. I think, <laughs> I actually, yeah, oh, no. I think that would be yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> All natural uh, weight loss supplement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, but but you can. I think the going rate was like somebody said like twelve hundred dollars. I heard to do it. Wow. But then he has to be in the hospital for like three days. Yeah, I would. I mean, it, I would do it. Uh, <laughs> I guess we've established that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're asking for it to be delivered to your office. Yeah, I want like uh, you know, like bleach the outside or uh, you know, sterilize it. Um, um, please don't walk into my office <laughs> with like a bucket of poop. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is interesting. On the last episode, we talked about um, there was a driving simulator that people could pay, be paid participants in studies of that, and sometimes it would make them nauseous. So this is actually our second uh, paid participant study that we're hearing about that could cause vomiting, but for very different reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's, it's definitely going to be a lot more vomiting than uh, you would in a driver simulation. But again, like I don't, I don't have like the money or the resources to do that so but we really do like trying to find uh like get your hands on some of this norovirus positive stool is really like a huge challenge so we do have <laughs> we do have surrogate viruses though that are you can do those animal tissue culture models with but um they're not actual human noroviruses they're related viruses that are s somewhat similar uh there's a mouse one that's actually a norovirus that infects mice uh it doesn't affect humans that, that we can use and we actually have a pretty simple uh, cell culture system for. Um, but for whatever reason, human noroviruses are a lot more complicated. It's a lot mm -hmm. harder to get them to replicate in animal tissue. Are they um, more common in some certain types of food than others? Uh, that's a good question. Um, because uh, humans are the main reservoir for it, a lot of it is just you know foods that are being prepared by somebody, actively prepared. Um, one, the only the only real exception uh, to that where it's actually like you know like people always think like oh it's spinach from somewhere is where we got salmonella or mm -hmm. whatever with norovirus it's more at the end of it's more at the post harvest end where you're actually preparing or manipulating the food because it's other humans handling it oh. um, the only exception though is uh, mollusks which I think you're talking about uh, oh. they're filter feeders um, and so that these mollusks uh, oysters is sort of the one oh. that that is the biggest sort of concern because you know people tend to eat those raw the most uh. so there's no kill step um and these mollusks are filter feeders so if humans you know you're out partying on a boat and you have you and your friends have horrible diarrhea or whatever they just dump it over the side or something like that and that those they they make their way over to like these these farms where they have these oyster farms uh the oysters are filter feeders so the virus in that whatever is in that stool is going to get filtered through these these mollusks and uh the viruses actually bind uh, molecules that are similar to molecules that we have in our intestinal tract, in the intestinal tract of these these oysters, and it'll actually bind them. And so basically, you're just concentrating a bunch of these uh, viruses. Uh, so so you have to like be pretty vigilant in terms of like making sure people aren't dumping fecal matter into into waters, especially where you're harvesting, um, you know, norovirus. Yeah, that's very interesting. Maybe you can develop a model for culturing those viruses in oysters. Oh, yeah, that's a, interesting. Yeah, that's a, uh, they, I don't think they don't actually infect it. They just bind uh, the outside. Mm. So, like, we can actually, they'll bind our cells, too, like some of our intestinal cells. We, we, pr we have these carbohydrates called histoblood group antigens, uh, which are just loosely related, like, to your, they're related to your blood type. So, like, there's, like, a type A antigen, type B antigen, type H, which I guess would be type O um, blood type. Uh, and these carbohydrates uh, are sort of what the virus bind. We, we think that they're either a co-receptor or a co-factor in infection, but again, because we don't, we, we just got these, these cell culture models being able to study what 
the viruses are actually doing when they infect us is has been sort of hampered for the last four decades. So, so I guess you know it's exciting time because we'll start seeing like what's actually going on. But we know for the most part most strains of this virus bind uh, bind like these carbohydrates that are also present in our intestinal cells um, and bacteria. So that when I was mentioning earlier, the bacteria that are potentially assisting infection also have these carbohydrates that are similar to what we have in our intestine, but oysters also have it. So, um, mm. you know, they're, they're basically just like concentrating all of the, the viruses um, and you, you know, eat it raw and then you're in trouble. So the oysters don't get diarrhea from the normal. No. <laughs> I don't no. even know what that would look like. But. So maybe that nobody ever asked for them. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been feeling before they slurp it down? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I'm not a big oyster fan, so I don't. Yeah, me either. I feel suddenly fortunate for that. <laughs> I think I'm allergic to shellfish. Are uh -huh. they shellfish? Oysters? Yeah. Yes. Yes, okay, good. But guys, do you know this uh, rule that... Um, Neuroviruses are not the only source of uh, bad health outcomes coming from shellfish because mm -hmm. they're filter feeders and uh, they can accumulate also many different bacteria, etc. Yeah. And uh, there are seasons in which mm -hmm. uh, concentration of those bacteria are uh, higher in uh. their bodies and when they are lower. And they are higher when uh, those bacteria proliferate in warm waters. Uh. So meaning that eating shellfish uh, collected during cold period is safer than uh, warm period. Mm. And there is a rule that if you want to eat them safe, just eat them during those months which have R in its name. <laughs> so like November, December, October, mm -hmm. September mm -hmm. is okay. Uh, February, March is okay. But all other months which don't have R Mm. It's not okay. <laughs> I had never made that association between cold months and the letter R. Okay, so I think we're ready to move on to the last segment of the show where we play a little game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. Um, and so the purpose of this game is kind of that in science we use acronyms a lot of the time to communicate because within our subfields, you know, we'll talk about something kind of complicated and it's easier to use an acronym, but it can also make it really inaccessible to people outside that field. Um, and so, yeah, this is kind of a game designed to hopefully demystify some acronyms. So we're going to have our guest co-host, Monk, uh, get some acronyms that were provided by our guests today. And if she doesn't get them, they'll jump in and let us know what they actually mean. <laughs> so maybe we'll start with um, our our virus-related acronyms. Um, um, so the first acronym is PFU. Um, perennial Farm Umbrella. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that? Do you want to tell us, Monk? <laughs> it's an umbrella that goes on a farm, but it, it comes back every year. Like, it leaves the winter. <laughs> and it protects the farm. Yeah, but it doesn't <laughs> like winters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not that's not what it was. <laughs> Do you want to jump in and tell us what it means? Yeah, it's a uh, plaque forming umbrellas. Umbrellas. Almost right. They're they're umbrellas that uh, you know you take animal cell culture in a flask and you actually they're little mini umbrellas and they they actually shade the the tissues. I'm uh, actually, it's plaque forming units. It's just it's just. Like oh. A, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> was, she was on board. She was, was like, "Yeah, like, I got yeah, umbrella." I get that. <laughs> No, it's I'm a, really good at this game. It's just a way of counting like the number of viruses you have in a sample. It's the easiest way to say that. Uh, it's the, yeah, units. the number of viruses you have in a certain mm. sample is the way to. Okay. 
Um, and Matt, you provided some acronyms that you wanted to be part of your field, but they're not. Yeah. Um, one of them was BGU. Big griddle unit. Ooh. You got two out of the three words on that one. What was yeah, the other word? Big gulp. Like a big, I don't know, are there 7-Elevens oh, up here? Oh, big gulp unit. Yeah, I so was like 100,000 BGUs a, a day. Oh, diarrhea. so the BGU is what you talked about. Okay. <laughs> so that's what the, your calculation of how much. Um, yeah, so 100,000. So like like I said, with the diarrhea in the U.S. per day <laughs> <laughs> caused by norovirus, it's 100,000 big gulp units. <laughs> I want to get that. I want to like to be a unit of measurement for volume specifically for diarrhea. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how 7-Eleven is going to feel about, about that, yeah. that honestly. <laughs> I feel like you'll get a lot of uh, pushback from them on that one. Okay, so let's move into our toxicology-related uh, acronyms. Uh, <clears throat> our next one is EDC. Elimination Diagnosis Center. Nice. Very good guesses, Monk. I'm really <laughs> impressed. <laughs> nice. So it is uh, endocrine disruptive compounds. It's a class of chemicals which interact with hormonal signaling. And given that hormones usually... Uh, produce the effects at very low doses. So the specificity of these chemicals is that they can produce significant effects by even very small concentrations. Oh, are, um, I'm curious, are those flame retardants? EDCs? Yeah, so for example, this compound which I study is also recognized a, as uh, EDC. Mm -hmm. And uh, among the famous EDCs, like bisphenol A mm -hmm. is estrogenic because it can simulate uh, estrogenic signaling, but PCBs can interact with thyroid signaling and et cetera. Uh, yeah, so like BPAs from like Nalgene water bottles, right? That was a yes. big thing yeah. for a while. They yeah. like yeah. had to change over the plastic they were using. Yeah, but in reality, they are found in much broader range of goods. Okay. And uh, another thing to keep always in mind is that if some compound was withdrawn from some type of good, likely it was substituted by something else, and we never know if this something else is better or worse. Right, right. <laughs> They're like, well, we changed it, <laughs> but <laughs> it might just be the same problem again. Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Monk, Sasha, and Matt. Yeah, thank yeah, you for thank having you us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having fun. us. Cool. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst, hosted by yours truly, Laura Federuso. Our guests today were Dr. Sasha Suvorov and Dr. Matt Moore. My co-host was comedian Monk Kelly. The jingle you heard at the beginning of the show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Support for online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Lab in the Palmer Science Department. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, SoundCloud, or subscribe on iTunes. Please go and do that. Let us know what you like or what you don't like about the show, what you'd like to hear about in the future. Please stick around for WMUA News coming right up.